How many of you have ever struggled with thoughts of condemnation? Raise your hand. Anybody else? Yeah, I think it's pretty familiar for many Christians. Many Christians today are, are still living in the pig pen of their past and are not able to, to fully live in the present. Many of us at times can still think about the mistakes of yesterday in fear of failing or making the same mistakes tomorrow. And even though that, that you may be saved... Thoughts of condemnation and guilt often are a part of the, the believer's life, unfortunately. There are questions like, God, am I really okay? Was your death and your burial and your resurrection enough for, for someone like me? If that's you, I've got good news for you this morning. In John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 is a very familiar verse, and I want to read it to you. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Now, John 3.16 is probably the most familiar verse that most Christians know, but verse 17 is huge and it's very important to us as a believer because many believers still think somewhere in their heart that, that God is still angry with them and that God is wielding this big stick of judgment just, just waiting for us to make a mistake. And I'll tell you this morning that that's not the heart of God at all. And it's certainly not God's heart towards us who are in Christ. And so you say, well, Bill, what, what exactly is condemnation? It ain't that. Here we go. Here we go again. All right, so here's what condemnation means. To declare something guilty or reprehensible, to find fault without reservation. You say, well, Bill, if, if that's not true of who I am in Christ, if condemnation doesn't apply to me, well, where does it come from? So if you will, this morning, will you turn to Romans chapter 7? Romans chapter 7. We'll look at verses 1 through 24. Now, Paul is writing to the church of Rome, and he writes this chapter because Paul wants to talk about the relationship between, and, between law and sin, and he's getting his point across that those who are now in Christ have been forever released from the law of Moses. He's not saying that now that you've been released from the law of Moses that you can freely sin and do whatever you want to do. But he simply reveals that, that the law of God, the Ten Commandments, that it can't save and it can't sanctify. And only Christ can give us the authority and the power to, to overcome. So I want you to just listen. I'm going to read, read these verses. He says, Or do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is alive, she gives herself to another man, she will be called an adulteress. But... 
if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress if she gives herself to another man. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you also were put to death in regard to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were brought to light by the law were at work in the parts of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that which we were bound, so that we may serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Far from it. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came to life. And I died. And this commandment, which was a result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me. And through it, killed me. So then the law was holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and it's good. Therefore did not which good cause, which is good, become a cause of death for me? Far from it. Rather it was sin, in order that it might be shown to be sin, by bringing about my death through that which is good. So that through the commandment, sin will become utterly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm fleshly, sold into a bondage of sin, for I do not understand what I am doing. For there are times I do not practice what I want to do, but I do the very thing that I hate. However, if I do the very thing I don't want to do, I can actually agree with the law that the law is good. But no longer am I the one doing, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that good does not dwell in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing in me is present to do good, but the doing of good is not. For the good I want to do, I do not do. But I practice the very evil of that I do not want to do. But if I do the very thing I don't want to do, I'm no longer the one to do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find this principle that evil is present in me. The one who wants to do good, for I joyfully agree with the law of God in my inner person. But I see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner to the law of sin, the law which is in my body parts. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So then on one hand, I myself with my mind, am serving the law of God. But on the other, my flesh, the law of sin. You say, well, how does condemnation get rooted in our life? Well, well Paul tells us here in verse 5, he says, For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were brought to light by the law were at work in the parts of our body. You see, Paul speaks of this thing that's going on inside of us and how the law was originally designed to make us aware of our shortcomings. However, the law has never had any ability to really change us. Matter of fact, it can't tame the fleshly nature. What it really does, it just stirs up all the things in our hearts that are contrary to the will of God. And so the law of God, it can only point out God's holy standard to where we can see our true condition. 
many people think that the Ten Commandments, the law of God, can produce what only grace can produce in your life. And so the law is like this ten-foot pole. Now, the law will be like me asking this ten-foot pole to make me ten-foot tall. It has no ability to make me ten foot tall. But what it does, it simply reveals where I'm at, that I'm not ten foot tall and that I'm short. The law of God, the Ten Commandments, have never been designed to save you, to sanctify you, and to justify you. Only God's grace can do that. And so when we look at ourselves, at the law, we realize that, gosh, I came up short, don't we? If this is God's holy standard, and it says that this is what I'm supposed to be, but that's not what I am. What normally happens to us when we realize that we don't meet God's standards, oftentimes that we will begin to start having feelings and thoughts of condemnation. That's what happens to us. It reveals that that we just don't measure up. Now Paul, he goes on and he talks about this struggle that's going on inside of him. And it's almost like he's saying that I've got this inner conflict that's going on in the side of me. And it's almost like it's a civil war. It's the North and it's the South. And and each one of them are both fighting for their rights. And at times he says, I feel like I'm serving two masters. Have you ever felt that way? See, Paul's life isn't much different for much of our Christian experience. We struggle between what we know to do and what we actually do. We can struggle between what God wants us to do and what we would rather do. And so can we be honest this morning? That there are times when we all ride the struggle bus, don't we? We can all ride the struggle bus. And anyone who tells you that struggle is not part of the Christian experience, they're not being honest with you. And they're not even being honest with themselves because it's not always sunshiny skies and roses. Sometimes it's thunderstorms and thorns, isn't it? And that's what Paul was, is trying to say here, that struggle is often part and parcel of the Christian life. Now, the good news is, is that you can be like the Apostle Paul. And you can struggle. He was a great Christian. But you can struggle at times in areas of your life on a daily basis. The good news is that the struggle is only one part of a story that's lived in the life of Christ. Many times, like I said, we we struggle between knowing what God wants us to do and what we would rather do, what we know to do, and what we actually do. But Paul goes on and he says, wait a minute. He said, there's something inside of me. There's this, there's this willingness also to want to do the right thing, to, to serve God, to obey God. A sincere desire to do that, to live a, a holy and pure life by the Spirit of God. But he realized, too, that there are times when he falls short. short. You know, too often... I don't know about you, but when we experience failure in our life, the first thing we often want to do is we we turn on ourselves, don't we? Sometimes we will do the, the devil's bidding. 
we'll condemn ourselves and give ourselves a really hard time. And what normally happens is that you end up spending most of your life living in condemnation, shackled to shame. I, I, I remember as a young Christian, that was one of the things that, that I struggled with. Listen, Satan didn't have to beat me up. I was good at beating myself up too. But when he would come along, he would just add fuel to the fire that I had already set. And so most of my life, most of my life, that I struggled with thoughts of condemnation. I would say terrible things to myself. Terrible things to myself. And here's what some people believe. But because sometimes when you think of yourself and you despise yourself and you condemn yourself, you think God despises you and God condemns you also. But but that's not true. That's not true. And I think sometimes that we often mistake the Holy Spirit's conviction from Satan's condemnation. Sometimes it may be hard to tell, but they sound completely different. Now, here's what, con- here's what condemnation sounds like. Just look at you. How many times are you going to do that? How many times? You know, you've done this over and over. How, how could God love someone like you? That's what condemnation sounds like in our hearts. Conviction, on the other hand, sounds completely different. It's not like a bully. And that's what condemnation is, kind of like a bully. Conviction is like this. Bill, son, now you know better. You know better than that. You know you, you shouldn't be doing that. You know God loves you. And so they're two completely different. They sound different. And Satan's army of accusers, all he wants to do is harm you. But when the Holy Spirit of God, what he wants to do is heal you from those things in your life that are bringing thoughts of condemnation. And so conviction is not God's punishment. It's not God's punishment. It's actually God's grace to to help you turn from dangers. To help you turn from the dangers of life is actually God's mercy upon your life when God convicts you because he loves you too much to leave you at the hands of your own compromises. He loves you that much. And I'll tell you this, that he does the same thing to us, Satan does. When he tries to condemn us just like he did with Adam and Eve in the garden. And his plan is to make sure that you never feel the presence of God in your life and to shackle you with shame. If you know the story of Adam and Eve when they made a mistake and they messed up, the first thing they did is they ran away. And that's what sin does in our life. It makes us want to run away and and it makes us want to hide because we know what the standard is, don't we? And here's the thing about God, that that he loves you and he wants us to be able to come to him with our our problems and our stuff. And he'll change us. But the enemy's purpose in condemnation is to make sure that you don't feel God's presence in your life. That's the whole purpose. You say, well, Bill, how do I know if I'm the type of person that's living in condemnation? You think about your past a lot. You constantly think about your past. He says this in Philippians 3.13, One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind 
and reaching forward to what lies ahead. It's the could-haves. It's the should-haves. It's the thoughts of the past mistakes that you've made. And sometimes it'll make you feel like you're just stuck, that you're in the same place today that you were yesterday. You can't seem to forgive yourself. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, Therefore, if any was in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed. Behold, the new has come. Now, for many of us, I believe that, that we know that when we're born again, that something different was supposed to change. But here's what people will normally do if they're stuck in the cycle of condemnation, is that they will hold themselves accountable in other ways that they would not necessarily hold someone else accountable. Many times what we'll do to ourselves is that we'll put our judgment seat higher than that of God's. By the time that's what we will do. And you'll have a different standard for yourself than you will for someone else, meaning that you'll cut them slack. But if you struggle with condemnation, you don't know who you are in Christ, you'll give other people a break that you wouldn't give yourself. Here's another one. You feel unworthy. Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, believing your God belongs and starts in your heart, not in your head. Knowing God's love begins in your heart. And so when God sees you and the mistakes and your faults and your flaws that you make, that he sees the, the worthy blood of Jesus covering you. And here's the good news, is that you know what? You're not perfect. And the truth is, you by yourself, you are unworthy, but God loves you anyway because of Jesus. And that's important because that's the beauty and the extravagant nature of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. He loves us anyway. You have a critical or judgmental spirit. Matthew 7, 2. For you'll be judged by the same standard that you've used to judge others. The measurement you used on them will be used on you. Many people who are stuck in the cycle of condemnation are normally comparing themselves with, with other people. And when someone else is actually complimented, if you're struggling this area of your life, you'll actually feel threatened. And you're not the first one to, to give things of praise and adoration. Many times that you'll just withhold that because you can't give away what you don't have. And so now I want to talk to you about biblical guilt. There is a such thing as biblical guilt. So if you will, you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, look through 1 through 10. Now, Paul was writing to this church in Corinth. Now, the believers there were still living and lingering in this lifestyle of sin. They, they haven't completely detached themselves from the world. They were still associating with non-believers. And the biggest problem were they were practicing idolatry. But Paul writes this letter to them because he loves them. And he goes on and he wants to speak this truth to them and encourage them to come completely out of idol worship. And here's what he says. He said, listen, this is going to hurt in the beginning. 
Because sometimes the truth hurts, doesn't it? But he does this because he loves them. And, and he realized that, listen, when he tells them the truth, that eventually they'll be helped by it. Listen to the word of God. It says, therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Make room for your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. Now, I don't say this to condemn you. I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live and die with you. I have spoken to you with great frankness. I take great pride in you, actually, and I, I'm greatly encouraged in all of our trouble. My joy knows no bounds. For when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest. And we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by his coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me with deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. And even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I don't regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurts you, but only for a little while, yet now I am happy. Not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led to repentance, for you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. You know, the hardest thing in life is not telling someone else the truth, is it? The hardest thing in life is telling ourselves the truth. Isn't it? Telling ourselves the truth, especially when we blow it. And we all do from, from time to time. But he says this, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness and reverence of God. You see, Paul's words were appropriate to the church of Corinth. And they're also appropriate for us because he tells us that we're supposed to take an active part of ridding ourselves of things that bring thoughts and feelings of condemnation. And if we were honest, I think we would say that most of our thoughts and feelings of condemnation come from our own compromises, don't they? That we give the enemy ammunition. But there are, there are two types of people and how they deal with guilt and how they deal with condemnation. There are those who never, never want to feel any guilt. As a matter of fact, if someone was to confront them, even in a loving way, they would immediately not want to be around that person. And many of them would even say that person is toxic. And they don't want that person in their life at all. But do you know the scripture where it says in Proverbs that 27, 6, it says, Wounds from a sincere friend are better than many kisses from an enemy. And I will tell you that in many places, in many churches, even this morning, there are people who absolutely don't want to hear the truth. They only want to hear sermons that make them feel good about themselves and, how, and want to hear how wonderful that they really are. And so week after week, there are sermons that are carefully crafted to make sure that you feel good about yourself and that you come back next week. And I'll say this, that we don't need sermons that 
do nothing but stroke us. We need sermons that provoke us as believers to live a holy and a pure life before God and before other people and to look at life, all of our life, the whole Christian experience through the lens of Calvary and God's grace. Now, it says that godly sorrow brings repentance, that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. You know, God does want us to deal with our sin and our shortcomings in a godly, biblical, truthful, and an honest way. And while biblical guilt can be unpleasant, it can be uncomfortable that it's necessary. God wants us to feel biblical guilt in its proper context. And I will say this, that biblical guilt is, is actually your friend. But what we do a lot of times is that when we feel condemnation or we, we feel guilt, and when this, this stuff that's in us starts coming up, first thing we want to do is get it far away from us as we can. We don't want to deal with it. That, that we don't want to look at that at all. But I'm telling you that there are times, particularly when it's biblical guilt, that God does want us to look at it. You can smell it. Right? Because some of the stuff that's in us is ugly, isn't it? It's ugly and it shouldn't, it shouldn't be in our life. But God does want us at times to look at it because if you don't, if you don't take the time to look at it, It'll be no use for you. It's just like drinking poison. If you keep drinking poison, you keep drinking poison, you never find out why you're getting sick. What do you think is going to happen to you? And so if you never deal in a biblical way with thoughts of guilt and condemnation, you'll never learn anything at all. So God does want us absolutely to look at it. And sometimes you just got to, to look at things if you want to be healed from it. And I'll tell you this about truth. The truth will set you free, but first it's probably going to tick you off. That's what happens with me. Sometimes when, when God shows me something, I don't always like it. But normally I can deal with it, right? And that's how one type of people deals with biblical guilt and condemnation. Some people don't want anything to do with it. And so their life never changes whatsoever. It reminds me of the person who who goes to jail they've done something wrong and they're behind bars and the first thing they want to do is they want to call the bondsman or they want to call their family and say hey come and get me out of jail when probably the more proper thing to do was just to sit there and look at those bars overnight and decide whether this is going to be about one night or this is going to be about the rest of my life and so God does want us to look at it. But then you have people who have actually kind of warmed up to bad feelings. You ever met anyone like that? They've actually warmed up, warmed up to these, these bad feelings of condemnation. And so when anything good happens in their life, it just feels weird. And they're just waiting for the next shoe to drop because they've lived in condemnation all their life. They've had these thoughts of condemnation all their life. You see, if, if you come from a dysfunctional family and you marry into a healthy family, 
That healthy family feels weird to you. Because those people, you know, they actually say what they mean. And they're able to express their emotions. I remember when me and Terry got married. Because I come from a dysfunctional family. She didn't. She was raised like the cleavers. I was raised like a pack of wolves. And so when we would go on through, through our marriage, I would tell her, you're not normal. You, no, you're, something's wrong with you. You're not, you're not normal. But really what it was me. Because I had lived with those thoughts for so long. For so long I struggled. Even as a Christian because I didn't really know yet who I was in Christ and, and what Christ really did for me. Now, you see, condemnation can be just like this little stuffed animal. You can live with it so long that it's so familiar. It just becomes so familiar. And this is how people stay rooted in dysfunction. That they've lived this way for so long. And, and here's the truth, is that there's something familiar about condemnation. And that's what makes it so hard to turn loose from it. It reminds me of the people who go to prison. And they've been in prison for 10, 15, 20 years. And then when it comes time for, for them to be released, they don't want to be released. Because now that they're institutionalized, if it was normal to them, prison is a safe place and, and we can be the same way. But biblical guilt is actually designed by God to keep you from shame. We'll say that again. Biblical guilt is actually designed to keep you from shame. Now, but Paul begins to talk about this new life in Christ, and he speaks of this new freedom that happened the moment you were born again. Despite your faults, despite your flaws, despite how you feel, despite the accusations, despite the condemnations from the enemy. And so, if you will, turn to Romans 8. 1 through 16. Now, Romans 8 is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. And it is my favorite because it's a summary of chapters 1 through 7. I like to call it a chapter of assurance because it begins with no condemnation and it ends with no separation and there's victory in between. And so, if you don't know and haven't spent time in the book of Romans, I would suggest that you do that. But he, it's a wonderful comfort when you read Romans chapter 8 because it talks about our new life in Christ and, and how he sees us. And to remind us as believers that condemnation no longer applies to you. Listen to what it says. Therefore, there is now no condemnation at all for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free. From the law of sin and death, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. By sending His own Son, the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but we walk according to the Spirit. For those who are in accord with the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who are in accord with the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God. 
for he is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you, beloved, you're not in the flesh, but you're in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you through the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, who who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers and sisters, we are not under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For you are living according with the flesh. You are not you are going to die, but if the Spirit put into death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, that's us, who are believers, are sons and daughters of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption and sons and daughters by which we cry out, I'm a father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we're children of God. And if children, we're also heirs. Heirs of God with fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, so that we may be glorified with him. So Paul was saying, listen, that there, there's no condemnation for us who are in Christ. None. See, the enemy will often tell us by condemning us and say, there's, nah, there's nothing changed in your life. You're the, you're the same old person that you used to be. But Paul was making this bold statement about a believer's current position. You see, you need to understand this morning that, that you're not only condemned in the future when we, when we stand before God. You're not condemned in the present. And I think that's where we struggle a lot too, don't we? We know that one day we'll, we'll get to go to heaven, but God says that we are not condemned in the present. Now... I'm a Civil War buff. I really in, enjoy history. In 1863, uh, President Lincoln penned the uh, Emancipation Proclamation. Do y'all remember that? That's when he was setting uh, the slaves free, and simply by a stroke of a pen and, and some ink, that he forever uh, freed the slaves. They were never to be enslaved again. And in the same way, when, when we accepted Christ and Christ began to live in us and we walked with Christ, that God emancipated us too. And the difference was it wasn't written in ink and it wasn't written by a pen, but it was literally written by the blood of Jesus Christ. And it was forevermore that you would never again be found guilty. You would never again be charged. Never to be condemned. And I don't know if you know, but you ever heard the old thing in court about double jeopardy? That's, that's where that came from. The term double jeopardy means you could never be charged again as a principle that actually came from the Bible. Do you have any idea why there's really no condemnation for you today? It's not because God's gone soft on sin. It's not because he's gone soft on sin. Listen to this. It was because of what Jesus did. And, and I want to clear something up this morning, because I think that many of us, or maybe some of us, when we think about Jesus' life and his death and what he went through for us, that, that that was just something that God just had to do because we were just such screw-ups. He really regretted having to do that. 
And I think many times that we feel guilty over that. But I want to read Isaiah 53 to you. Because I hope this changes your heart when you hear the heart of God for you and what Jesus did. It says, but the Lord was pleased to crush him. It pleased the Lord to crush Jesus for you. It pleased him. Putting him to grief if it would render himself as a guilt offering. See, this is where God was dealing with this issue of guilt once and for all, settling for all eternity. He said he will see his offspring and he will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. You see, every stroke of the whip, every bruise of the reed, every act of lawlessness, all of that was poured out on Jesus. Every bit of, and so if it all was poured out on Jesus, do you know what that means? That there's none left for you. That there's none left for you. And so for me, I think, God, that's good news for prodigals, isn't it? That would be really good news for prodigals. And here's the thing, and, and maybe you have been away a long time. You've walked away and you're just not walking with God and you're feeling constant condemnation. But I want to tell you that not only is there no condemnation for you, is that there's no rejection for you either. If you were wanting to come home and say you may have wandered, you may have strayed off the path. You may be like the prodigal son. You're living in a faraway land, and you maybe feel like you've squandered your spiritual inheritance. But God loves you. And that Christ died for you, so you didn't have to feel that. There's, there's no condemnation for you if you are in Christ Jesus. You say, well, Bill, what does it mean when I'm finally free from condemnation? Here's what I found out. Is that you're finally free to love God without fear of punishment. You're free to love God without fear of punishment. And once you're free of that, there's something that happens in your heart. Is that now you're free to love others the same way. You're free to love other people. But the biggest thing is is that you're free to live this Christian life with such joy. With such joy. And I know as Christians sometimes that, that we're not very joyful, and we should be, once we understand that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Now, here's something that's important. You say, well, Bill, how do I unhitch myself from these thoughts and feelings of condemnation? I think it starts with us, and so it has to end with us. If you want to truly be unhitched, from these thoughts and feelings, you've got to stop looking at yourself. Because there's plenty of material there, isn't there? And what you need to do is you need to look at that cross and say, there is my guilt. There is my shame. There is my condemnation. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you that I don't have to, to live that way anymore. That you're not angry with me anymore. That you saved me and you, you set me free. And it says in this scripture, uh, I said earlier, that what Jesus actually did, when Jesus was crucified, God condemned the very thing in the flesh that Satan uses to condemn you with. Do you realize that happened that day? That he condemned 
condemnation on the cross. That's important for us to know. I think only then, when you understand, you know what? I'm free from condemnation. I will tell you that people don't like free people. I have found in my own Christian experience, when they found, find out that you're really walking with grace and they're not, they're not happy campers. Because they don't have, ain't that true? They don't have what you have. But I'll tell you this morning, that's the only way you can say, when you finally get it, it is well with my soul. That's when you'll know, when your soul is well, when you understand who you are in Christ, what he did for you, that you're free now, there's no condemnation for you, only then can you say, oh, it's well with my soul. It's well with my soul. And so this morning, I want to tell you this about your flaws, and despite your failures, and despite your struggles, that God loves you. God loves you. You've been washed. You've been justified. You've been sanctified. You've been set apart. So you can live a guilt-free future, but you're also able to, to live in the present. God, we need to live in the present because we miss so much of God when we are always struggling in our heart and our mind when the enemy lies to us and doesn't tell us the truth. You remember me telling you that the truth will, will set you free. And so if this morning, if you have struggled with that ever, or maybe you, you still do, you remember what Jesus did for you. He died so you didn't have to struggle with those thoughts of condemnation because they're not true. They are not true. Jesus took care of that for you. And so let's pray. Father, I thank you for grace, mercy, and your kindness upon us. Thank you, Lord, that for those of us who are in this room who've been born by the Spirit of God, Lord, that you see us through the, the blood of Christ. Everything that you demanded, Lord, you required and you provided. You did that because you love us, that you want us to be set free because you know that if we're not free, that we can't be free to love you and and serve you. So God, thank you for doing for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. Thank you, Lord, for despising all the shame, the humiliation, taking our place, Lord, so that we would be free, no longer slaves, but free to love you and love others. In Jesus' name, amen.